0: Good morning. Good morning. Can everybody hear me? Yes. So, I had a church for about a year, and it was about this wide <laughs> and about half as deep. And I loved it because I didn't actually have to use a microphone because I can be quite loud. But um, <clears throat> so hopefully we'll all be able to hear each other. And if you can't hear me at any point, just start going like this, and I'll start using my preacher voice. (laughs) Uh, The preaching text this morning comes from 1 Corinthians, it's verses 1 through 16, and I'll be reading it to you now. This is the word of the Lord. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come proclaiming the mystery of God to you in lofty words or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I came to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. My speech and my proclamation were not with plausible words of wisdom But with a demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might rest not on human wisdom, but on the power of God. Yet, among the mature, we do speak wisdom, though it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to perish. But we speak God's wisdom, secret and hidden which God decreed before the ages of our glory. None of the rulers of this age understand this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the human heart conceived, what God has prepared for those who love God. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For what human being knows what is truly human, except the human spirit that is within. So also, no one comprehends what is truly God, except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit that is from God so that we may understand the gifts bestowed by God. And we speak of these things in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual things to those who are not spiritual. Those who are unspiritual do not receive the gifts of God's Spirit, for they appear as foolishness to them. And they are unable to understand them because they must be spiritually discerned. Those who are spiritual, on the other hand, discern all things, and they are themselves subject to no one else's scrutiny. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct Him? And here's the concluding line. But we have the mind of Christ. But we have the mind of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. Grace us with the interpretation of your Spirit so that we might discern your movement this morning and every day. Amen. When I was a bit younger... Uh, About a decade ago, I spent a number of years exploring a charismatic denomination known as the Assemblies of God. Has anybody heard of the Assemblies of God? I hadn't really known much about Pentecostalism or about this particular denomination, and had just sort of uh, fallen into it. I had heard the call several years earlier and was studying theology at a small college in uh, the southern tier of New York State. And I was preparing to enter the ministry. But at the same time, I was starting to lose faith in the church and tradition that I had been brought up in. You see, I haven't always been Methodist. For shame. (laughs) I was baptized at the age of 13 in a neo-Calvinist church that had splintered off from the mainline Presbyterian church. uh, Presbyterian denomination, that is. The PCUSA. Uh, back in the 80s, I think, was when that split had happened. We read the Westminster Catechism, which some may have heard of. We talked a lot about predestination, and we liked to uh, argue about whether we had free will or not. And every year, uh, the men of the church, the elders, uh, would go to the county fair, and they would set up a booth, with a gigantic sign, a hand-painted sign, that read in big, bold type, scrawled across it, Are you going to heaven? Not sure? Just fill out this multiple-choice tract to discover if eternal salvation shall be thine. Oh yes, the correct answer was always D, fill in the blank. Jesus. (laughs) If we were feeling particularly generous that day, we might have given partial credit for the following responses. God doesn't condone women in positions of authority. The homosexuals are corrupting our youth. And Ronald Reagan may be the second coming of Christ. (laughs) In retrospect, I don't think I was ever really comfortable with these sorts of claims. But I wanted to fit in, to be part of a community, to never find myself on the increasingly long list of 'er ne'er-do-wells who had been compromised by secular culture, who listened to rock music, you know, those wayward souls who just couldn't follow the rules, etc., etc., etc. But by the end of my first year at university, I had become something of a nomad, both uh, in my life, but also theologically and denominationally. I could no longer stay with those uh, sorts of claims, especially once I met Kate. You know, it's, it's difficult to have an issue with women in ministry when your wife is just about the best dang preacher you've ever met. So I wound up staying at school for the summer, and I needed a job and I rented an apartment, and I was looking for something to do, and so I wound up applying with the maintenance department for the college, and somehow wound up assigned to work with the head plumber there, who, as it just so happened to be, was the lead pastor of the Assemblies of God Church in the town next over. And as it just so happened, they needed a worship leader, and somehow, I'm still not really sure entirely how this happened, I wound up with the job. But interestingly, Part of the responsibilities of that position required regular trips to revivals that were being held throughout western New York. Does everyone know what a revival is in the Pentecostal tradition? Oh good, I'm going to tell you all about it. That first summer, I must have attended a couple dozen of these revivals, and it was a totally new world for me. People were praying in tongues, some were dancing ecstatically in the aisle, Each night, some folks would go up to the front, usually hoping for a miraculous healing or some other sort of divine intervention to make the cancer go away, to heal the arthritis, to see again, to fix the limp from that car accident several years ago, to bring a wayward child back to Jesus. The preacher would go down the line and prophesy over each one claim restoration in the name of Jesus. And then he, it was always a he, would pop them on the forehead and down they would go into the waiting arms of elders and pastors as if all the energy had left their legs and shot straight to the site of injury. Someone would always fetch a conveniently located blanket to cover them with and they would just lay on the floor as long as they wanted to while the praying kept going and the dancing kept going and the music kept going and the prophecies from the preacher would just come hard and fast. I tried it once and it didn't really work. The preacher prophesied that my music ministry would grow and bring all sorts of people to Christ. And then he bopped me on the head and I just kind of stood there. So he did it again a bit harder. Still didn't go down and he said just go with it. So I let them lay me on the ground and I thought to myself, with the blanket over me, well this is interesting. I spent a couple of years on that beat and then I wound up working in the youth ministry of the largest Assemblies of God Church in Buffalo, New York. But I never could quite figure out how to speak in tongues. The pastor said I was in my head too much and would probably do better as a scholar than a preacher Maybe true so i became united methodist because we are somewhere in the middle between those two anecdotes we like our rules and our doctrine but on the good days there's still room for the holy spirit to flow in between them that's in part why our denominational symbol is the cross and flame The founder of our denomination was a revival preacher himself, after all, but in a comparatively moderate sense. As an eminent Methodist historian put it, John Wesley was a reasonable enthusiast. I like that. I can get down with being a reasonable enthusiast. So I offer these two anecdotes from my past because I believe that they illustrate some things that we all have in common some aspects of human becoming that are universally shared among us, even between Neo-Calvinists and Pentecostals, despite their pretty remarkable differences. Here they go. We are all seeking restoration and revival in some way or another. We are all seeking divine knowledge and a spiritual language to suit it. And we, also, we always need to be wary of the temptation to fixate on who is in, which usually is accomplished by deciding who is out. Maybe because they don't think that Jesus is the answer to every multiple choice question, or they can't speak in tongues, or they don't quite match up with the ever-expanding criteria by which a community of faith Assures itself that we've got this Christianity thing figured out. This is actually precisely the situation that the church in Corinth found itself when Paul was writing this letter to them. It was a diverse community with some rich folk and a somewhat larger number of poorer folk. Some were Jews and some were Gentiles. Some were educated. Some were skilled, some could read, many could not. Paul had lived and worked among them for perhaps a year and a half. But since leaving, tensions had begun to build among the church, and divisiveness had flourished. Feels a little familiar today, huh. By the time Paul penned this letter, it had been several years since he had last visited, and in the meantime A whole bunch of other preachers and teachers had come through. Each had a slightly different message or emphasis, and many of them, so the story goes, were much more dynamic preachers than Paul. It seems from the letter that these teachers were proclaiming the mystery of God in lofty words, whereas Paul came in humility to speak only of the crucified Christ. The result of his weakness is that the founding of the church in Corinth and the building up of the community there was not grounded on his skill or his knowledge, but manifested, was only manifested in the movement and power of the Spirit. So that your faith, he writes, so that your faith might rest not on human wisdom, but on the power of God. Our text today is very much concerned with the difference between worldly wisdom and spiritual insight. There are a variety of approaches that we could take to thinking about this particular passage, but as I have sat with the text throughout this past week, one thing has really stuck with me, and it's how insistent Paul is that this spiritual insight is secret and hidden. No one can comprehend, he he writes, no one comprehends what is truly God's except the Spirit of God. We cannot attain mastery over divine wisdom. It's not something that we can learn in school, nor is it a perspective that comes with a promotion to the corner office at work. The rulers and powers of this world do not have the eyes to see or the ears to hear, Paul tells us, or they would not have crucified Jesus. And so it seems that the faithful must relate to the spiritual knowledge in a different way. Is there a way to shift our perspective somehow to the left or to the right so that when we go out into the world, into our day-to-day lives, we can see what is around us from a slightly different angle? In the opening of the passage, Paul is clear that such a question is addressed to those who are mature in Christ. Yet among the mature, he says, we do, we do speak wisdom, though it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age. It is so interesting then, at least to me, that in the verses that come immediately after this passage, in the opening of chapter 3, Paul asserts that the church at Corinth was full Of those who were infants in Christ. I can just imagine them. They've received this letter. They get into this chapter two bit, and they're reading about all the wisdom that the mature in faith have. And each one of them is thinking, oh, yes, that's me. Paul's got me right. Gosh, he really knows how wise and mature I am. And then they flip to the next page. No, Paul says, you're all children. You're all children. You've met folks like this before, right? I certainly have. Thinking about it really brought to mind another passage from the Bible where these two kind of ideas collide. The third chapter of John's Gospel have you heard the story of Nicodemus before? He was one of the councilmen. And he came to Jesus in the dark of night so that nobody would, ever would see what he was up to. And Nicodemus said to Jesus, Rabbi, teacher, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs that you are doing if God were not with him. To which Jesus responded, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it's coming from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. So here's the interpretive move. I won't keep him much longer. Perhaps being a child in the faith is not such a bad thing. Perhaps being a child is not such a bad thing. Aren't we, after all, called children of God? And yet, so much of Western culture is actually very anti-child. And this despite how we fervently believe that everything we do is for the sake of our children. It's one of the most peculiar blind spots in American culture in particular. We assert over and over again that all of the orders of society exist to provide for our children, to make safe a future for them, to provide opportunities for them, to protect them. And yet, so often... You really just got to flip through the news for this. The way this plays out in reality so often involves deriding infancy, erasing immaturity, criminalizing delinquency. I don't have to talk about the border or our expanding juvenile delinquency system in our own communities in central New Jersey northern New Jersey we take our children and we pack their days full of school extracurricular activities in many cases when they're done with soccer or whatever sport they're playing they come home and we've hired a tutor for them Kate and I have seen it These kids are so tired that they fall asleep in the car immediately as soon as they have a chance. And we do it all with very good reason because if we don't prepare them for the competition then they won't get into the feeder school and then they're not going to get into the Ivy League and then they're not going to get the job at Goldman Sachs or whichever Wall Street big mega corporation that we Hope that they get it shot at. Here's the clincher for me. Just think about how common it is for us to assert our superiority over those who disagree with us by calling them infantile or childish. That sort of way of talking doesn't actually work if we think children have something to offer. Childhood is not generally considered a virtue in our society. We are all engaged in a race to adulthood, and that seeps into our spiritual life all the time. So often I have seen people of faith trying to assert their maturity in the Spirit, proclaiming to know whence it has come, whither it will blow, and how to harness its power again. Against that inclination to power, Jesus points to the children among us. For faced with the hidden mysteries of the Spirit, how could we be considered anything but infants? Let the little children come to me, he said. And this, I think, is one of the principal difficulties involved in hearing and understanding and interpreting this passage from 1 Corinthians today. Because it's so easy for us to read our own collective disregard for childhood into the text. If we read closely, we will see that Paul is not saying that the immaturity of the Christians at Corinth was causing their divisiveness. The infancy of the Corinthians is not the problem. It's their desire to be considered the adult. The immaturity, the spiritual immaturity of the Corinthians is not the problem that's causing the tensions and the divisiveness in the church. It's the ones, it's the desire in them to be regarded as the mature adult who follows Apollos or who follows Paul, and knows what the answers are, and has the secret key to the kingdom, to the spiritual mysteries, that which is hidden. So I'll bring these rambling ruminations to a close. Perhaps the old adage to have the faith of a child doesn't simply mean exhibiting innocent trust or blind obedience Maybe instead, having the faith of a child is the key to the divine perspective shift. An invitation to see the world afresh, to hear the rustling of the Spirit and chase after it. Not out of the temptations to power, to power over other people. But for the beauty of joy and curiosity and wonder. And that's really what I want to bring to us today is the notion that the larger point that Paul seems to be leaving us with in this section of 1 Corinthians is that if we ever wish to attain actual maturity in Christ, if we ever wish to have the true gift of insight, then we must choose to be infants first. That really is what I wish we meant when we speak the language of being born-again. Born-again Christians. So what does all of this mean for us? Does this only apply to the neo-Calvinists I grew up with or the Pentecostals that I worked with? Does it only apply to the born-again evangelicals making salacious and scandalous headlines? No, we are all tempted to consider ourselves the adults in the room, the spiritually mature, especially us religious scholars and pastors, right? But what wonder is there? What freshness, what new experiences are available to us when we set aside such pride and go back to the font of grace with the faith of a child who doesn't have all the answers. So may each of you go forth this week to put on the mind of Christ as a child. Shoes on the wrong feet, shirt on backward, gum in your hair, vulnerable, unruly, with emotions you don't yet know how to control, occasionally mean on the playground, but also joyful, full of love, and capable of change, encountering all things new. Put on the mind of Christ as a child so that you can begin to hear again the breath of the Spirit and be led by it. Only in this way can a church community like ours continue to be a family of discernment to receive the gift of true spiritual insight and to see anew how God is working in this and other communities around us so that we can join in. Amen?
1: Let us pray together. Gracious and holy God, we give you thanks that today you remind us that you first and foremost are a holy mystery, a holy mystery that we don't have figured out no matter how adult-like we may feel. God, we give you thanks that you remind us every day that this faith, the words that we proclaim when we come into this space, they are still holy mystery. They are our best guess and attempt at understanding anything about who you are. God, it is enough and it is never enough. And so when we come before you, God, every day in our daily lives, may we remember that we are encountering you new and fresh That we get to be curious and wonder about how it is you work and move and breathe and live in this world. And God, remind us that we don't have it all figured out and we don't have to have it all figured out because you are still God.